And this is Sarah R. with Self-Care with Dr. Sarah, and I have a special guest with me today, uh, Dr. Suzanne Vernon. I met her by chance uh, while at a reunion, and I just was really inspired hearing her stories of being a woman in science and her career path, and we wanted to uh, interview you today and find out some of the wisdom that you can give to us. Um, so to start, could you maybe tell us a bit about your career path and, and how you went to where from, you know, your education to where you are now? From wet behind the ears to 55 yeah. <laughs> year old woman scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Hi everyone. This is Suzanne. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah, for this opportunity mm -hmm. to talk to your audience. So I had had a very interesting journey professionally. Um, I started really getting interested in microbiology when I was an undergraduate and I took a work study program at the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, their vector-borne diseases branch in Fort Collins, Colorado. I was an undergraduate at Colorado State University and my major was actually animal science and this whole field of microbiology and disease control was fascinating to me. And it was an incredible opportunity to actually get into a lab and you know, do sampling and then go into the field and then bring samples back into the laboratory, all as a student. So this hands-on experience was something that I think really started my journey as what ended up being a disease detective. Mm -hmm. um, so I got my master's degree in microbiology. Mm -hmm. Um, at, the Col at Colorado State University. Mm -hmm. And when I was presenting my results um, for my master's thesis in Mexico, there were some investigators there from the University of Wisconsin-Madison who were actually studying the viral disease that I had studied for my master's. Mm -hmm. I developed a diagnostic test. And they invited me to apply or be a part of the PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I looked into it, and it was an incredible opportunity again, because what they were doing with that virus was actually studying it in Costa Rica. So this was 1985. Was this HPV? Was it this was vesic vesicular stomatitis virus, oh, okay, so which is an animal virus. Mm. Um, and I was like, wow, how cool would that be to be yeah. able to do most of my field work for my PhD, my dissertation in Costa Rica. Yeah. And this is really before Costa Rica was, is now the tourist Mecca. So it was, it was very, very exciting. So I jumped on it. Yeah. And I finished my dissertation work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison from 1985 to 1989 mm -hmm. with my PhD in virology. Mm -hmm. But I could never get myself away from the idea of wanting to go back to the Centers for Disease Control mm -hmm. Prevention. Mm -hmm. That's where I kind of got introduced to disease control and being a disease detective. So I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship, which was then administered by the National Science Foundation. So I got an NSF fellowship to go to CDC in Atlanta, Georgia this time. And it was then that I started working on human papillomavirus. Because again, another for another kind of serendipitous thing happened where I was finishing up my dissertation work and this 
character, I mean, he really was quite a character, was giving a seminar at UW-Madison. And he just happened to be from the CDC, who had just happened to come from Panama. And he was at the, uh, what was called the Gorgas Institute in Panama. This was before Noriega or during Noriega, and I guess then all the Americans had to leave Panama, so he ended up at CDC of Atlanta. Anyway, this guy was giving this seminar on human papillomavirus, and it turned out that he was one of the first to actually detect human papillomavirus mm. associated with cervical cancer in Panama. Mm. And he did one of the first molecular assays that turned into a diagnostic assay. So we clicked. Here's somebody, again, doing field work, developing diagnostic assays. And then being able to apply that in populations was just something that was near and dear to my heart. So I applied for that postdoctoral fellowship, got it, went down to CDC, and then ended up working with him on HPV. Then that led into work with HIV. Mm -hmm. We were looking at HPV and cervical cancer as an opportunistic infection in HIV. Mm. And then a couple years later, I became staff at CDC. And was there until 2007, so almost 20 years at CDC, and I had a great time. And then I, then I jumped from the federal government to the nonprofit patient advocacy world. Mm -hmm. I spent the past eight years as the scientific director for a small nonprofit patient advocacy community. Wow. So, so that's an incredible story. And what I really, when you were telling it to me before when we first met, one thing that stuck out was an imposter syndrome thought that you had when you were at CDC, you know, about the feeling maybe not worthy. Could you, could you go into that for our Yes, I'm not worthy. <laughs> so CDC is huge. CDC Atlanta, there's about 6,000 employees. Mm-hmm. And I would say of the 6,000 employees, at least half are MDs. And so really CDC is run by MDs. It was established by MDs when, when there were major public health crises and, and really is, is very much dominated by MDs. And I am a PhD. And so I felt lesser yeah. than the MDs. And, you know, it was, it was, it was weird because you'd go to seminars and they'd be given by MDs and most of them were men, very few women. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they were, you know, the CDC directors were all men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just felt like I needed to be something more. And so I applied to medical school. Yeah. Emory was right next door. I said, well, you know, I'll take the MCATs and apply to med school and then, then I'll be an MD PhD and you know, then I'll be taken seriously. Then <laughs> I'll be taken seriously yeah. and, and I'll be worthy to mm -hmm. be at this amazing place. I got pregnant. Yeah. And then I didn't go to med school. And I think I just I just finally found my place. Yeah. And I found my my worth, my value. Mm -hmm. Um became very proud of being a scientist. Because what, what, what I realized is that my training as a scientist was quite different mm -hmm. and remarkable from a medical, medical training. I was really taught how to think if that's, if that's. Yeah, you, it's complimentary and, and, you know, MDs don't have the same background in research. Exactly. 
you know, and I think, I think I'm surprised the CDC didn't have more PhDs, to be honest, but it's when you're the lone fish in the water, so to speak, you know, it can, you can feel out of place. Well, actually, I think they finally did realize it. There's a program called the EIS, which is the Epidemiologic Intelligence Service before I was there, actually during the time that I was there, they, um, they only accepted MDs in the Mm. EIS program. You know, the real disease detectives are MDs. But I think it was probably in the early 2000s that they started opening it up to PhDs and nurses Mm. and other public health people that, you know, could help complete the picture. Yeah. Provide those other perspectives that are so important to really figure it out. Yeah. Because it isn't going to be one just expertise. It's going to take a, a team. Yeah, exactly. And and you going back to the fact where you said predominantly in your field as you've been working it was dominated by men and as we were talking on our hike you mentioned some pretty blatant examples of sexual harassment I was just wondering if you'd uh, be able to talk a bit about those and how you were able to you know still persevere as a scientist and what you had done to self care around that Yeah, it's interesting um, because I've had experiences like that from the moment I went into college. An undergrad, yeah, you mentioned undergrad, it. Yeah. <laughs> Your first I think my, my first week, you know, and we're getting all the classes set up, and I was assigned my counselor, and I went into my counselor. He was an entomologist. He was an old guy, probably, I don't know, I was 18, so yeah. he was probably like 38. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think he was more like 60-something. Yeah, but, yeah. but I remember him asking me to come over to his desk and I did and it was summertime and I had shorts on and I I, he asked me to bend over and sign or sign something on his desk and so I bent over to sign it and his hand went up my skirt yeah and or my shorts and I was aghast yeah I I literally said what are you doing and then and then walked out and went and was assigned a new um counselor. So that was my first unfortunate experience. And and I'll just tell you the ones with the various professors. Then when I went into my my PhD program, we'll jump ahead, then I'm going to go back. There was a veterinarian and he was the actual main veterinarian for the primate center. And he, his office was in the basement of our Mm. our department where our graduate offices were. And I remember going, coming back from class and going to the office door, and there was this pin-up centerfold picture pinned up on the door. And it, it had scribbled on it, a new graduate student. And um, so I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was to me, even yeah. though I was the only female Woman graduate there. student. Yeah. <laughs> so probably. Um, <laughs> so we took that down, and then you know the, these little incidents kept happening and I'd go to my desk and like open up the cabinet and there would be another kind of picture and the straw that broke the camel's back was when I was walking to class down Mm -hmm. the hallway and he was coming the other way and he reached out and he grabbed my breasts you know I shoved them away and then I went and I told the department chair who I actually knew quite well what had happened and you know the, the reality was is I knew I could take care of myself yeah but I was most concerned about the younger women mm-hmm. who he was an, he undergraduates, um, you'd mentioned, had yeah. undergraduate students mm-hmm. and that they wouldn't be able to 
deal with it because maybe they hadn't had previous experiences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing that my department chair said, well, we can't really do anything Mm -hmm. about it. (laughs) So this was now in the mid eighties. And then in the, when I was actually working on my master's program and I went to Mexico with my advisor, who was a female. Yeah. She was actually one of the first MDs yeah. to go to Africa and work on Lassa and Ebola and all these other kinds of amazing, you know, viruses and outbreaks. And I totally respected her. Mm-hmm. But when we were in Mexico and her ex-husband was there and her ex-husband was making Google eyes at me mm-hmm. or something, and she sensed his attraction to me, and then she um, totally, totally alienated me mm. for that reason, even though, you know, nothing ever yeah, happened definitely. between. So, um, you know, it comes from everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and you reported the first guy, too, right? And they said that they couldn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, so, exactly. you know, it's in this, you were, you were doing all the things that you're supposed to do. And yep. just there was no consequences yep. for these actions. Yeah. Um, but you still carried on, and still carried on. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's it's almost the story of my life. I I seem to just function or move forward or look forward based on my experiences. You know, I think about the kind of young woman that I was mm-hmm. in high school. I was a kind of a kind of a bratty horse riding girl who thought she knew everything. And then when I went into um, college, I had a number of experiences that made me just kind of think, Hmm, you know, maybe I could adjust this way. And it's been, it's been a good experience. I think I am the person that I am now. Mm -hmm. I, I do the things that I do Mm -hmm. with my family and my husband and my life because of these accumulated experiences. And I didn't have parents that were, my, my family is very blue collar family. Yeah. We had steel fabrication company as I was growing up and no one went to college. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just had to learn a lot on my own. I remember you said you told your daughter about these experiences kind of before she went to school to warn her of, of the possibilities. Exactly. You know, and exactly. What- yeah, and and I, I've told her all of these stories because I want her to, you know, just kind of go into things with her eyes wide open yeah. with that knowledge because knowledge of all yeah. shapes and forms is good. And I really like how you have this relationship with other, you know, like mentoring me as, you know, we were talking about different issues in science and thinking broadly. And you're a very creative thinker. You've been thinking out of the box on a lot of issues. But one thing that also really struck out to me was um, how you managed a work-life balance you know, when you were at the CDC and you started telecommuting, could you like talk a bit about that and like where your priorities were and how did you manage that career, family, personal happiness sort of balance in your life as you went through? So I, I'm really, really fortunate to have an amazing husband. And when we had children, we were both four years into our careers Mm -hmm. In Atlanta, me um, four years at CDC, and my husband four years at Emory University. Mm-hmm. And our first child was born in 1994. And I don't know if you're familiar with Atlanta, but it's this big metropolis, yeah. yeah. and we lived way outside of the perimeter. 
and the traffic is horrible and our commute every day was like an hour and then we had to find daycare. We found a wonderful Cuban woman who I still send Christmas cards to today and get one back who um, took care of our son. Mm. And one day when we went to pick him up after daycare, it was like five thirty, six o'clock. He, he was yeah. there, you know, at yeah. 7.30 in, in the morning. He cried because he didn't want to leave her. Yeah. And we both, my husband and I looked at each other and was like, this is not right. Yeah. And so we had the big discussion of wow. yeah. what are we going to do? And at that point in time, he decided that he would be the stay at home dad and I could yeah. continue my career. So that was the first kind of like aha yeah. moment. And just for our listeners, I'm just going to interject. We have some rain coming down. Hopefully that's not disturbing anyone in the background, but we're out here in beautiful Jackson hole um, in a cabin um having our our podcast but you know so that might be some background noise we get as we go through the rest of the podcast Maybe it's nice peaceful restful yeah. <laughs> background noise the rain falling. um and then we had our second child in 1998 and um at the same time my husband had this opportunity mm-hmm. to go work with his mother in wyoming actually on she had a big ranch there and Now it was my turn to make this decision. And again, I'm still every day leaving the house at 6.30 in the morning, getting to CDC at 7.30, 8 o'clock after listening to NPR. And by the time I would get to CDC, I'd be so stressed out because the the world is so messed up and start my day with, with just being all strung tight, wound up. And by the time I would get home, It'd be seven, six thirty, seven o'clock, and my kids would be ready to go to bed. Yeah. And literally, I was seeing my kids maybe an hour wow. at night. Yeah. I just decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, no career was worth that. Yeah. And um, I decided I was going to quit, and we were yeah. going to move to Wyoming, and my husband could could be the breadwinner, and I could be the mom. And when I said, okay, I quit, they said, no, don't quit telecommute. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, what a great idea. And Mm -hmm. then I took the next year, Mm -hmm. year and a half, to really diary everything that I did in my day to see whether or not it would be possible. And by that time, I had had it, I was running a team of about, my team was about five or six people, Mm -hmm. postdocs and technicians. We had some great programs going on in Africa. But anyway, after that assessment, I realized I can do this. And so I left and moved to Wyoming and didn't have any kind of telecommuting going on (laughs) and wasn't so plugged into NPR to hear all of the woes of the world because we barely even had radio reception (laughs) where we lived. Um, And I would go back to CDC about once a month for a week at a time. You mentioned that being really central, that being, you know, you can telecommute all the time. Like you basically were, you know, you were living in an entirely different state out in the middle of nowhere. Right. But having that collegial environment one week a month really helped you keep in touch with everything going on. Yes. And I think it's really important for anyone who works remotely, whether it be just a couple of miles away from downtown and you work out of your home office, to have that type of periodic stimulation yeah 
you know, to get to be back around your peers, yeah, um, is very very important. Yeah, and then you're like it's it's a weekly or you know a once a month immersion, and then you go back, and then you're all doing the same excited and stimulated, and and um, you know the wheels are turning, and then you go back and do it again. So it was a really really nice balance. And that's actually I don't know if we had this conversation, but that's what I did the last five months for my postdoc is I would go one week a month to Cornell because, you know, my husband and I still had a lease and thing, his job in Boston. And I had this uh, postdoc after I graduated with my PhD before I start my, you know, next postdoc in this fall, just kind of tie up the academic year with my advisor and she'd moved to Cornell. Uh, so I did basically the same thing where, you know, I really tried to argue pretty hard for getting a remote working position, but working one week a month, which really worked out well, you know, because you can get a lot done in a week and you can see, you know, the people that you need to see there. And then there's a lot of things to do when you get home, Yep. you know? Yep. Yeah. I think it's for some people, it's a, it's a great way to work and Mm -hmm. be highly productive. Mm -hmm. And it just worked for me. And it's funny because when I started doing it in 1990, you know, this telecommuting Yeah, that wasn't thing, even a thing, right? It was really <laughs> not like that one popular. Of the first people. <laughs> Especially at CDC. Yeah. I remember they, um, the Denver Post actually interviewed me. Yeah. And what is it, their lifestyle section? Yeah. And the Sunday paper, and there was this big old picture of me <laughs> um, at my desk in my little house in Wyoming. And, and it just worked. Yeah. It worked. And it continued to work. So from night. When did, I, when did I start telecommuting? Um, 2000, in 2000, I started telecommuting. Yeah, to 2007. Till two, no, actually, I continued it you on continued with on. my, yeah. so 2000 to 2007 with CDC, and yeah. then from 2007 until no. now, yeah. um, I'm able to work from anywhere in the world, really, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. Because... I've proven that I can. Yeah. I have more than a hundred peer-reviewed yeah. publications. I have colleagues all over the world. Yeah. I have connections all over the world. That network is incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. So to sum up our time together, I was just wondering if you have any advice looking back over the years to your younger self. Are there things you know you covered a lot of them now, but is there any last words that you would would give us? No, I think this is kind of hokey (laughs) but you know it's all about being happy and knowing what it is that makes you happy I love science science is one of the things that makes me really happy and I now realize that I can be a very productive scientist no matter where I am Mm -hmm. and I think it's important when you're you know making these decisions about Mm -hmm. what is it that is good for me that makes me happy that you don't allow people to say you can't do that or what are you nuts you know you're not going to be able to publish papers or you can't do science that way don't don't take that for an answer challenge yourself it is a little scary yeah to go against the grain yeah I think it's less against the grain these days yeah. because there's many more stay-at-home dads. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a lot. I mean, technology is just amazing. Yeah. You can do... You can Skype. You can... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's just don't be afraid yeah. and, and go for 
what makes you happy. Stress is bad. You can find balance in your life. And that's what's really, really important. That's an amazing thing to end on, I think. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Sarah, Sarah Ballard and I, Sarah B and I will be talking about happiness as as it relates to productivity in a later really? uh, podcast because there's a lot of research on that showing that you are productive when you're happy. You're not happy because you're productive, but the other way around. You know, you need to be happy first and then you'll be productive. Yeah. So I'll send you a link to that when we have that up. But awesome. thank you so much for being on our Thanks, podcast. Dr. Sarah.